If you have a Bible, open to John 21. Here in just a minute, we're going to read the entirety of John 21, so you want to have your copy of the Scriptures open. If you're reading this week, we're finishing the Gospel of John in our reading plan, and we're dipping our toe into the book of Acts. So I hope that you're current with us in our reading plan. Tonight is one of the Wednesday nights where we're going to go out of order with respect to what we're going to talk about on Sunday. So on Sunday, we're going to back up and we're going to look at John chapter 19. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've gone through Matthew, Mark, and Luke And we have not talked, as we've gone through those three Gospels, we have not talked about the crucifixion of Jesus. And so we've been saving that for the Gospel of John. We're going to talk about the crucifixion on Sunday. Tonight we're going to jump to the end of John. We're going to talk about one of the great stories in the Gospels, one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to some of his disciples. A few things quickly before we jump in and read this passage. Everything in the Gospel of John falls under the umbrella of John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. We said that every week when we went through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, passage by passage, we've said it every Sunday, every Wednesday, as we've talked about the Gospel of John in this reading plan. Uh, That's the purpose statement of God's John's Gospel. And we'll just put this verse up on the screen for you to see. Uh, You're right there. If you're open to John 21, you can see it. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Everything that John wrote was written for that purpose that you would believe the truth about Jesus, that he's the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing in Jesus, by putting your faith in Jesus, you would have life through the name of Jesus. One of the things as we come to the end of this gospel that I want to emphasize to you is the unity of the gospel of John. So let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean by the unity of this this gospel. The gospel of John is sometimes called the book of signs. You notice that in this purpose statement, John says Jesus did many other signs, but these, these signs were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So sometimes it's called the book of signs. And I've given you the references on the screen and on your notes on the handout. You'll notice that two of them are in bold on the screen. You'll notice that two of those signs or in red, those two go together. In John chapter 2, Jesus cleared the temple, and the Pharisees demanded that Jesus perform a sign to show that he had the authority to clear the temple. And Jesus said, tear the temple down, and in three days I'll rebuild it. John gives us the explanation in chapter 2 that Jesus was not talking about bricks and mortar. He was talking about his body. He was talking about his death in his resurrection, and everything in this gospel from John chapter 2 all the way to the end builds to this idea that Jesus will die, he'll be buried, and then he'll be raised from the dead three days later. And you read about that in John chapter 20. It's the ultimate sign in the gospel of John showing you that Jesus is the Christ and he is the Son of God. Another unifying feature of this book, the gospel of John contains several I am statements. I am statements. Sometimes Jesus just says to the people that he's talking to, 
I am, and he claims the Old Testament covenant name of God, Yahweh, for himself. But sometimes Jesus says, I am the vine, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. And as we think about this final chapter, our minds ought to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 10, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and he says to Lazarus' family, I am the resurrection and the life. He wasn't only talking about the fact that Lazarus was about to walk out of that tomb. He was ultimately talking about what he had come to do, to be crucified for sinners, to be buried, to be raised from the dead, that when we believe the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that we can know resurrection and life as well. So, John 21, Jesus has died, he's been buried, he's been raised from the dead, he is appearing to his friends, to groups of people, to the disciples. And that brings us to the big idea of this final chapter of the Gospel of John. Very simple. The Christian life is marked by three things. Repentance, love, and discipleship. Your life as a Christian, among other things, ought to be marked by these three things. Repentance, love, and discipleship. So we're going to try to unpack that this evening. Look at the scriptures with me. Let's read this passage together. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says this, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others... Of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat. And you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they have finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Father, we pray tonight that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word and that you would press it home to our hearts as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I've been listening to a a sermon. It was posted in two parts. It's posted by a preacher, a pastor in Ohio named Alistair Begg. And he's preaching a series of sermons about Jesus having encounters with people, Jesus meeting people and having conversations with people. And one of the passages that uh, he selected and that he preached and was posted this week uh, was the story of Jesus meeting the Gadarene demoniac. You remember that story? Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee and he went to Gentile territory and he got out and there was a man there who was possessed by a legion of demons. He was roaming around in the cemetery, unclothed. Uh, He was wild. He was out of control. He could not be bound with chains. People were terrified of him. He was a social pariah on every level. People were absolutely mortified and terrified of this man. Jesus was neither of those things. And he approached the man and he told the legion of demons to come out of the man. And then strangely, he allowed the legion of demons to enter a herd of pigs. And the pigs immediately went rushing off a cliff into the Sea of Galilee and they were drowned. And in this story, in this sermon on this story, one of the things I appreciated about Beg's sermon is he talked about this bit with the demons and the pigs. And he made the point, and it's an important point, that you could spend a lot of time speculating about why the demons wanted to go into the pigs. 
You could spend a lot of time speculating about why the pigs with the demons immediately went over the cliff. You could spend a lot of time speculating about why Jesus allowed the demons to enter the pigs, presumably knowing that they would then go over the cliff. You could spend a lot of time talking about demons and pigs. And you could miss the point of the story. And in the sermon, he talks about all those things briefly. He offers guesses and interpretations and theories and all the rest. But he does make the point, that's not the main point of the story. Don't miss the main point of the story. It's not a story about demons. It's not a story about pigs. It's a story about Jesus. He talks about a a hypothetical, it's probably not so hypothetical, a hypothetical home group Bible study that's studying that passage. You've been in maybe a Bible study like this where you just sort of go around in a circle and everybody chimes in their two cents. And he says, you can see Mary over here saying, well, I kind of like pigs. And we go around to Billy over here and he says, well, I don't know. Why would the demons want to go into the pigs? Do demons want to go into other animals? And then Timmy's around the other edge of the circle, and Timmy says, I had a dog one time. I think it was possessed by a demon. To which I would say, I had a dog one time. I think it might have been possessed by a demon. I don't know. And you go around, and everybody's sort of chiming in and talking about pigs and demons, and you completely miss the point of the story. And I've thought about that sermon this week as I've prepared for this sermon. For this reason, I think Begg's warning applies to John 21. There are things that we just read about in John 21 that are interesting. We could speculate about them. We could venture theories and guesses about different things in this passage. Just a couple of things that might catch your attention. You may wonder why does John include the detail that there were 153 fish. Some of you remember when I preached this passage a couple of months back, I gave you all sorts of exotic theories about the number 153. And do you know what it really means? 153 fish. They were fishermen. They counted them, and they remembered how many they caught after fishing all night with nothing, and Jesus says the right side, And that's how many fish they caught. That's what it means. There's nothing to decode there. A deep Bible study doesn't need to do mathematical gymnastics with the number 153 to figure something out. Maybe you wonder about verse 15 when Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? Did he mean, do you love me more than your boats and your nets? Or did he mean, do you love me more than all the other apostles love me? If you have a study Bible, they probably venture a guess about one of those two theories. And we could spend all evening arguing about one way or the other and what does it mean, but it's not the central point of this passage. You could look at John 21, 15, 16, 17, and you can pull out your interlinear Greek, English, New Testament. You can pull up stuff on the internet and you can say, why does he use different words for love? Why do they use different words for sheep? Why do they use different words in this back and forth? And you can speculate about all that. And it's interesting. And maybe there's something there. or Maybe there's not anything there. But it's not the main point of this final chapter of the Gospel of John. Our aim tonight is to talk about the main point of this chapter. And the main thing that you and I need to take away from this chapter is the answer to two questions. Question number one, what do we need to take away knowing about Jesus, who he is, 
And secondly, what do we need to take away understanding about what it means for us to follow Jesus? So we're going to answer those two questions in turn tonight. Question one, what does this passage teach me about Jesus? Here's the first and the most obvious truth from this story. Jesus is kind and he's forgiving. He is kind and he's forgiving. That sounds like something that belongs in a third grade Sunday school class, but it's something that grown-ups very easily forget. Jesus is kind and he is forgiving. He's not cranky. He's not bad-tempered. He's not irritable or moody. He's not a person that you would describe as curmudgeonly. The New Testament describes Jesus in the incarnation getting hungry at times, but he never got hangry. Jesus is not the kind of person that holds on to things and gets bitter and sour and holds a grudge. You may have family and friends that do that. You may know people that you work with or that you're related to, or maybe you're the kind of person that says to others, hey, I'll forgive you once, but after that. Well, you're not very much like Jesus because he's not like that at all. He's kind and he's forgiving. He's not mean to his people. He's not harsh with his people. He's not like the young lady that I met at the gym this last week. Emma wants to get a membership so she can go with a friend and work out at the gym before school. So her trial membership was up. And we went in to sign up because I have the money. So we went in to sign up for this membership. And we walked up to this desk. And there was lots of people working there, standing there. And I approached. And I took my billfold out. And I stood at the counter. And not one person said a word to me. And I wanted to say, I have money. I want to give it to you. Do you want it? And finally, a a young girl came walking over, and she stood in front of me, and she said nothing. She just looked at me. And I said, can I get a membership? And she said nothing. She turned around, and she got an iPad, and she handed me the iPad. We left after signing up, after giving them all our personal information, and I said to Emma, well, she was grouchy. And Emma said, you're grouchy. That's what teenagers are good for, that kind of (laughs) nonsense. I said, what do you mean? That was the rudest, worst customer service I've ever had. She said, you were mean to her. So you can split the difference in that story. (laughs) Neither of us apparently are anything like Jesus. He's kind and he's forgiving. I want you to think about the Gospel of John just for a minute. We're at the end, okay? At the end of the Gospel of John. Who is Jesus? Who is he according to the Gospel of John? He is the Word who in the beginning was with God and was God. He is the one who created everything that exists. He is the light that came into the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome the light. 
He is the Word made flesh. He is the Christ. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. That's who He is. And what is He doing while the disciples catch nothing and then they drag up 153 large fish out of the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee? What is the Word incarnate, the Word made flesh, the Creator of the universe, the One who made our galaxy in the beginning? What is He doing? He's making breakfast. Fish and toast. I don't know if you can wrap your mind around that. I've thought about that all week long. This is the one who speaks stars into existence. And he's standing on the muddy bank of a lake frying fish for his friends. It's because he's kind. When these guys show up and they talk to Jesus on the shore, I want you to think about some of the things that have happened recently in the Gospel of John. I want you to think about what were the disciples doing in Jesus' moment of greatest crisis. They were sleeping under the canopy of olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus had asked them to pray, they were taking a nap. And then they woke up and they turned tail and ran away as fast as they could and left Jesus all alone. And then Peter, the most confident, the most brash, the leader, he's clearly still the leader, I'm going fishing, we're going with you. Peter, not that long ago, was calling down curses on his own head, insisting that he didn't even know Jesus of Nazareth. And then there's Thomas, even after the resurrection, Thomas is part of this crew. Thomas missed the first appearance of Jesus to the disciples, and you have Thomas saying, I will never believe. I will never believe what you have to say to me. To his closest friends about Jesus, I will never believe it unless I get to see it. And then they come off the boat, and Jesus is making breakfast. And he's not like Santa Claus with a list, checking it twice. I remember what you did. I remember what you did. I remember you were the first one to run. He's not standing with his arms folded and his brow furrowed, trying to shame them or embarrass them. He's cooking breakfast. He is, in John 21, who he's always been. He's kind and he's forgiving. And that's really good news for sinful people. It's really good news for you and me because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that's who he is tonight. He is kind and he's forgiving to his people. He knew your sin far better than you will ever know it when he joyfully, gladly, willingly went to the cross and endured the shame of the cross for you. 
and he knows your struggle with sin even now. Believer, Christian, somebody who has put your faith in Jesus. He knows you're still a work in progress. He knows you still mess up. He knows you still fall short. And he is not irritable or mean or harsh or ugly. doesn't hold a grudge. He is kind and he's forgiving. Your sin, your sin does not stop Jesus from being who he is. It doesn't change who Jesus is. He's kind and he's forgiving. And your sin, my sin, is the very thing that helps us to see just how kind he is and just how eager he is to forgive. What does this passage teach us about Jesus? Number one, he's kind and he's forgiving. Number two, Jesus has something for his people to do. He has something for his people to do. Some people hear a statement like that, and immediately a red flag goes up, and they say, that smells like legalism. You sound like a Pharisee. Jesus wants me to do something. Are you saying that Jesus will be kind and forgiving to me if I do all the right things? Nope. He is kind and he is forgiving. And we can walk and chew gum spiritually. He has something for his people to do. And you see that in this passage. Jesus has something for his people to do. That's not legalism. Think in the Old Testament. Let's think Old Testament, New Testament. In the Old Testament, the people of God suffering in bondage in Egypt. God brings them out and he saves them to belong to him, not because of any good thing in them or any good thing they've done. He just sends Moses and he brings them out in dramatic fashion, and then he gives them the law. And he doesn't say, if you keep the law, you'll be my people. He says, I brought you out to be my people, so now keep the law. And when they don't keep the law, it doesn't stop them from being God's people. It just means they're disobedient people. God had something for them to do. This same pattern plays out in the New Testament when you think about our relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, 9, and 10. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I put the important small little preposition words in red. How are we saved? By God's grace. Only by grace. How do we receive that grace? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Only because of God's grace, because He's kind and forgiving, and it's only received when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the outcome of all of that is we are saved not by our good works, not through our good works, but for good works. God has something for his people to do. You see that in John 21. You see it, for example, with Peter. Let me just sort of give you a mashup of things that Jesus wanted Peter to do. Some from John 21, some from other places in the New Testament. We already know that Peter was going to be the rock upon which the church would be built. And that came to fruition on the day of Pentecost when it was Peter who stood up. 
the leader of the twelve, and he preached the first sermon in church history, and thousands of people flooded in to the kingdom of God. We see it in verse 15, 16, 17. Feed the sheep. Peter, feed the sheep. Peter, take care of the lambs. Feed the sheep. Peter, preach the word. Your job is to preach good news to God's people. Verse 22, follow Jesus. Peter, I want you to follow me. Peter wrote two books in the New Testament. First and second Peter. And more than likely, while he was a prisoner in Rome, he told a young man, John Mark, about his experience following Jesus. And Mark wrote that story down in a gospel that we call the Gospel of Mark. In the end, one of the things that Jesus had for Peter to do was die as a martyr. And he talks about that in this passage. He opens the window a little bit for Peter to see what his end will be. Peter, I have things for you to do. Jesus had things for John to do. Several things that we would say about John. If you've been reading in the Gospel of John, you know that one of the things John was tasked with doing was taking care of Mary, Jesus' mother, from the cross. John, take care of my mom. Mom, John's going to take care of you like he's your own son. I need you to do this for me, John. John would be known as a pillar in the early church. One of the key leaders. He was a pastor. Tradition tells us for a time in Ephesus. Pastor of First Baptist Ephesus. John, I need you to pastor a church. He wrote five books of the Bible. The Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the book of Revelation. And in the end, he's, tradition tells us, the only apostle not to be martyred for his faith, but he dies as an exile on a prison colony named Patmos. Something for Peter to do. Something for John to do. Guess what? Something for you to do. I wish there was a John 22 that just spelled it all out for us and made it really easy. It's not there. But he does have something for you to do. Sometimes young people struggle with this because they say, I don't know what I'm good at. Those old people are grouchy and they're not going to listen to me. They're not, they don't want me around. I've never, I don't know. I, I'm just not very good. I don't know. Sometimes old people say, man, I'm over the hill. Man. I'm, I'm past my prime. I used to be, I can't, not anymore. I don't, why does God even have me around? I don't know. People tell me that all the time. And then you got the people in the middle. They're usually busy people. I, do something for God. I have kids and they have baseball and they have volleyball and they have this and they, I, I got work and I, over, I don't know. I don't know. So, I, talk to the young people. Have you asked the old people? It doesn't matter what life stage you're in, God has something for you to do. And I can't tell each of you exactly what that is, but He has something for you to do, some way for you to serve. Some way for you to encourage someone else. Maybe it's simply being present at things that your church is doing. Maybe it's praying for people. Maybe it's leading or teaching a group of people in some context. 
God has something for you to do. Maybe he has something for you to learn. Maybe it's an academic thing, a Bible thing, a content thing. Maybe it's a life lesson type thing. God has something for you to do. So all that talk about doing, here's our second question. We'll move a little bit more quickly through these. What does this passage teach me about following Jesus? Four ideas. Number one, a Christian regularly repents of sin. Regularly repents of sin. Peter sinned against Jesus. Not unlike how Judas sinned against Jesus. It was a betrayal, in essence. He denied knowing Jesus, calling curses on his head three times. Jesus is kind. Jesus is forgiving. But that doesn't mean Jesus just ignores sin. There was a breach in this relationship because of Peter's sin, and that breach had to be dealt with. The sin had to be dealt with. You read in John recently that Peter denied Jesus standing by a charcoal fire. When Peter gets off the boat, or rather swims from the boat and gets out of the water and walks to the shore, there's Jesus making breakfast on a charcoal fire. And I think as you read the account in John 21, you notice verse 20 says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. I don't think they were just sitting around the campfire chatting and Jesus gave him three rapid fire questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Okay, we're done. I think this is an extended conversation walking down the beach and talking about who knows what. And every now and then Jesus drops a question. Three of them. This is Peter's moment to repent. To repent means you change your mind in a way that your life is changed. And Jesus is asking Peter to change his mind. Peter, you were embarrassed, you were scared, you panicked, you were overconfident, you thought you were better than all the other guys, they might deny you, I won't deny you. Peter, do you love me? Asked him three times. Repentance takes place for the first time at the moment of conversion. When a person initially turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus. And then it continues to take place throughout the life of a believer. And it's not that every time you sin you lose your salvation and you've got to get it back. But it's that sin introduces a, a disruption into the experience of your relationship with God. He's not just going to sweep it under the rug and pretend it's not there. It has to be dealt with. And the way that Christians deal with sin is they repent of it. They change their mind. And you do it over and over and over and over again. When Martin Luther wrote the 95 Theses, the very first one, thesis number one, this is it. We'll put it up on the screen. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's not just the thing you do when you go to confession or you give your money or you buy an indulgence or you go do this religious thing. It's just what Christians do in the entirety of their life. They regularly repent of sin. Number two, what does this passage teach me about following Jesus? A Christian loves Jesus. Jesus did not ask Peter to pass an advanced systematic theology exam on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
The issue was not, Peter, do you have all of the Bible answers nailed down, and are you ready for Bible Jeopardy when your Sunday school teacher forgets to prepare a lesson and they do Bible Jeopardy? Peter, can you win Bible Jeopardy? That's not the question. Jesus does not expect his people to have everything figured out. He does expect his people to be devoted to him. And the call on Peter's life is, Peter, do you love me? Much, if not most, of what happens in evangelical churches in the United States of America is feeling-based, emotion-based. Truth takes a backseat to our experience and our emotion and our feeling. That's just generally true across evangelical churches in the United States of America. I pray, our elders pray, that when you come to Emmanuel, you are confronted by and engaged with the truth. And then it happens in a way that you understand it. We want you to understand the truth about Jesus. That's why John wrote this gospel. I want you to know that he's the Christ and that he's the Son of God. He wants you to believe these things. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The truth matters. But if you go home from Wednesday nights and you go home from Sunday mornings and all you have is a bunch of Bible Jeopardy answers in your brain, and you are not growing in love for the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're not doing it right. Following Jesus means loving Jesus in an ever-increasing, constantly growing love. Number three. What does this passage teach me about following Jesus? A Christian loves other believers. What did Jesus say to Peter each time he answered and asked a question. Number one, feed my lambs. Number two, tend my sheep. Number three, feed my sheep. It's very trendy today for people to say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not very religious. Uh, I like Jesus, but not so much church. I like Jesus, but church, eh institution, stuffy, rules, committees, denominations, fighting, arguing. I don't want all that stuff. I just want me and Jesus, not everybody else. As an arrogant, condescending way to approach the Lord Jesus Christ, who talks about the church as his body. I like Jesus but not his body. Jesus calls the church his bride. It's the bride of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ. I like Jesus, but I hate his wife. You don't say that to people you care about. Now, the wife might be The church might be all that same stuff. If you love Jesus, you care about his body, you care about his bride. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, Peter. Number four, a Christian follows Jesus. The ending of this story is so relevant for you and me today. 
Peter, when you're old, you're going to be stretched out and you're going to be led where you don't want to go. And Peter hears that and he doesn't like it. Follow Jesus, being led where I don't want to go. And apparently in this walk down the beach, he turns around and John's eavesdropping. And Peter does what we all love to do. He plays the comparison game. Well, that's what you have for me. What do you have for John? And Jesus very kindly says, Peter, mind your own. If I want him to live forever, what do you care? It doesn't change anything for you. Just follow me. Follow me. We're the social, social media age. And we willingly, habitually, routinely subject ourselves to the comparison game. We compare families. We compare holidays. We compare dinners. We compare vacations. We compare cars. We compare everything. Churches. Congregations, buildings, homes, you name it. We compare, we look, and you can't help but compare. It's a toxic thing for us. Constantly comparing. What about that? What about them? If any people needed to hear this, if I want them to have a Mercedes, what is that to you? If I want them to have perfect children who all get into Harvard and make straight A's, and what is that to you? If I want them to have the best job or the best vacation or whatever, what is that to you? Jesus to Peter, verse 19, follow me. Jesus to Peter, verse 22, you follow me. That's what a Christian does. We repent of sin, change our mind about sin. We trust in Jesus for life because he's forgiving and he's kind. And then we follow him. Not complicated, it's not easy. But it's not complicated. Christian life. Repentance. Love for Jesus. Love for his people. And discipleship. Following Jesus. Let's pray.